Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Just the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. seven billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary, actor, fashion stylist, TV host, author, model. (laughs) Is there anything today's guest does not do? Also, I have to say, he's just a stellar human being and a pure joy of a person to interview. So I am so excited to welcome today's guest, Marcellus Reynolds, to the show. Marcellus got his start in fashion as a model, working for clients such as Tommy Hilfiger, The Gap, Ralph Lauren, before turning his attention to celebrity styling, where his clients have included, you know, just a few people that you might recognize, you might know a little bit something about, like Justin Timberlake. Um, (laughs) Yeah, but it, it was not until last year in 2019 that Marcellus published his first book, which is called Supreme Models, Iconic Black Women Who Revolutionized Fashion. And this is the first ever art book devoted exclusively to Black supermodels. He is here to discuss this really beautiful book with us today. Marcellus, thank you so much for joining us on Dressed. Marcellus, welcome to Dressed. We are so honored and pleased to have you here with us today. I am so excited to to (laughs) appear on Dressed. You have no (laughs) idea. I love your podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much. And of course, as everyone knows, we are here today to talk about your incredible book, Supreme Models, Iconic Black Women Who Revolutionized Fashion. And before we kind of get into this conversation and talk about this incredible cast of women who populate the pages of this book, I can't say enough wonderful things about it. I would like to talk about you and your career because you're no stranger to fashion modeling or the industry. Can you tell us a little bit about your formative years? I mean, you've written so beautifully about these models' origin stories that I would love to hear yours. What brought you to fashion? Well, I talk a little bit about it in my introduction in the book. Um, The way the book works out is Veronica Webb, the queen, wrote the foreword. I wrote the introduction. Um, And I tell a little bit about my story. My story is very simple and and I think um, similar to a lot of uh, gay kids. I'm a little black boy from the south side of Chicago. I never met my dad, single parent home. I have two siblings, um, two younger brothers. And it's hard to talk about my past because it's a little bit sad. I was the black gay kid. And the worst thing you could be in any black neighborhood is the gay kid. So I was bullied and I was beaten up and I was chased home. So within that, though, my grandmother, my mother worked 
and my grandmother was the matriarch of the family and she lived in the same building we lived with my grandfather. So every day I'd get home and I felt incredibly safe within those four walls. When I made it through the door, it was like, woof, I'm safe. And my grandmother did everything she could do to counteract the ugliness that I was experiencing on the outside. So she talked to me about my day, good and bad. And she realized that I was um, smart and really verbal. And so she, she nurtured that. She bought me books and she had magazine subscriptions and she had magazines like Ebony and Jet, you know, but she also had like that weird science magazine, you know, and <laughs> National Geographic. And she had highlights for kids, you know, like, like kind of white people stuff. Cause I wasn't seeing this in my other, in my black friend's house, but I had National Geographic. You know, she got a set of encyclopedias. And so she encouraged me that if I didn't know something and I asked the question, she would be like, go over there, get the dictionary and look that word up. Or she would say, go get the encyclopedia. You know what to do. And so I would, if I was watching television, I would see something and I would go, I don't know what that is. Let me, let me get the dictionary. And I, I also tell this story which, from my childhood. So I watched a movie called Mahogany yes. that starred Diana Ross. And it's a historic movie. This is the 45-year anniversary of Mahogany, of the release of Mahogany this year. And Mahogany is set on the south side of Chicago. And it was the first time I had seen the south side of Chicago where I lived in a movie. Because she's from the south side of Chicago. She works at Marshall Fields, which is a legendary, um, she's a stylist, an assistant stylist at uh, Marshall Fields. And she's a design student. And it was the first time I saw any of those worlds, you know, behind the scenes at Marshall Fields, which I had been to shopping with my mother and grandmother many times, fashion styling as a career. And then she gets discovered and she becomes a model and she goes to Rome. And I remember as a little kid getting my encyclopedia for R and the volume R and looking up Rome. And Rome is in Italy. And people that, are, that live in Italy speak Italian. And these are the cities in Italy. And it was like, that movie just hit me in this place that to this day, whenever I watch it, I'm like transfixed by the beauty of it, by the possibility of it. And that's what's so important, I think, about my book. And when I think about how important Ebony and Jet and Essence were to me as a child, kids need to see, of every race, need to see themselves represented because it gives them a space to dream. You know, you see a firefighter and you're like, I wanna be a fireman. You see a police officer, you're like, I wanna be a police officer. You see an astronaut and you decide you wanna be an astronaut. Now, unfortunately, my little black gay butt decided he wanted to be a model and live in <laughs> <laughs> But that's my origin story for my entire life, right there. I saw Mahogany maybe at, an, at too early an age and decided, to like work in fashion and become a mom. <laughs> <laughs> and you were discovered waiting tables, right? That's I feel like that's such a classic like origin story. Um, you know, a model who's discovered in a grocery store or waiting tables. Somebody saw you and saw something in you, right? Such a cliche, you know. <laughs> but it's true. 
but it's true in my case. Yeah. So working my way slowly through college, I was an English major and I was paying for it myself. And I was working at one of the like hottest restaurants in Chicago. And I had to work a lunch shift. You had to work at least one lunch shift to get dinner shifts there. And the dinner shifts, we were making like three, four, five hundred $500 a night. And I was like the queen of the room. Like I was a slinker. I had this whole thing I would do. Like I would walk across the floor like it was a runway because the restaurant was huge. It was a converted warehouse. So funny. People would make fun of me like how I would walk up to tables because I would slink up to the tables and I would be like, hi, I'm Marcellus. I'm your server tonight. Shall we start with a glass of champagne? What are we celebrating? You know? <laughs> so I was working my penance lunch. And my first table was a table of three women. I was like, damn it, I don't even want to be here. And it's three women. They're not going to tip. They're going to want everything on the side. You know, there's all these like stereotypes when you're a waiter about waiting on tables of women. So I slink my little butt up to the table and I'm like, hi, I'm Marcellus. Welcome to Marche. Um, the specials today are blah, blah, blah. Right. I get right into it. And the woman, one of the women looks up at me and she's like, wow, you're attractive. You should be a model. And then the, uh, then the second woman starts laughing and she says something like, wow, do you think she's done this before? And then all, all three of them started laughing. And I was like, girl, have the salmon. Because <laughs> I thought they were hitting on me. Because that's another thing that happens when women have lunch. You know, they start drinking and they're like, oh, you cute, baby. Where are you from? And I'm like, I'm not, not today. I'm working lunch. If it was nighttime, I would be like totally into it. So anyway, the third woman looks up and she's like, listen. This is Mary Bonsher and this is Marie Anderson. If they tell you you should be a model, you should be a model. They own Aria. So I was like, wow, I know people who work, who are models at Aria. And they give me their card and they're like, come into the agency. It's right up the street from the restaurant. And it was this crazy time in my life because I had had an Afro for a really long time. That was like part of my shtick. Like, right? So I got a bad hair color job and my hair turned out burgundy. And I shaved my head to get rid of the color because it was ridiculous. It was like black girl burgundy. <laughs> it was chocolate brown, but it turned out black girl burgundy. So I was like, I can't be walking around like this. But the moment I shaved my head, all these people were like, wow, bone structure, wow, skin. And so I shot for Mademoiselle Magazine with the photographer friend. And I shot for Chicago Social with another photographer friend. So when I walked into the agency, I was like, yeah, I guess people want me to model. I don't know I really want to do that because I wanted to act and actors don't think modeling is serious. Well, the booker told me no, he turned me down. And he was like, I have too many black guys. And this was my first experience with racism in fashion. Because I looked at this board and there were like easily 200 plus models on the board. And there was this one section at the bottom and there were maybe four or five black guys. So you have every iteration of white model possible. And you have a ton of Latin models. But you're going to tell me that you have enough black guys when you only have five black guys? And so I took my film from Mademoiselle, the outtakes, and I like left. And I was like, well, I didn't want to be a model anyway. And then the Chicago social story came out and that booker ended up calling me because he was like, 
oh my God, you're in Chicago Social. It's all Aria boys. It was all Aria boys and, and, and one Aria girl and me. And because I was the only black person in that editorial with like six other white guys, I stood out. And also because I was an actor and not a model, I wasn't standing over there trying to give you face. I was like jumping and I was dancing with the girl and everything was like over the top because I approached it like an acting gig. I was like, you know, act like the guy that would be in this thing with this girl, you know? And so the pictures were wonderful and they brought me in. And right away I started working because I had film, I had tears, you know, I had the Mademoiselle tear, I had the Chicago social tear and they put together a card and within like, God, a week of the card hitting, I was like working. And so that's how I became a model. And the woman that discovered me is the same woman that discovered Cindy Crawford. Wow. (laughs) So you had a a wonderful career as a model. You're also a fashion stylist. Now you're an author of this incredible book, 244 pages, I think. It's 60 plus models, 70 plus models of some of the most iconic shakers and makers in the fashion industry. But you write in the book's introduction that, quote, this book isn't just beautiful pictures of beautiful women. And you've talked a little bit about it being a celebration, but also about representation. Can you tell us a little bit more about the inspiration behind creating this book and its message? Okay, there's so many ways I could go with that. This book is the book that 10-year-old Marcellus, who went to the encyclopedia and read Ebony and Essence and Jet from cover to cover, he would have loved this book if his grandmother had it. You know, he would have read it from cover to cover and he would have been like, Vogue, Paris, where's Paris? You right. know, <laughs> where are these African girls from? And, and you know, where's Nigeria? And, you know, he would have loved that book. So it's for every little gay kid and every little girl that wants to see wonderful pictures that represent the entire world and the entire spectrum of of Black beauty. You know, from alabaster skin to, to onyx skin and different sizes and different hair textures. But it's also, it was a direct clapback because I collect art books. I collect books on photography and designers and models. And in 2011, a book came out called Vogue Model, The Faces of Fashion. It was the British Vogue book. And it was a, co- it was a compilation of all these models who have appeared in British Vogue. And so I bought that book and it's oversized and it's beautiful and it was expensive. And the day it hit, you know, the day Amazon dropped it off, I read it from cover to cover. I was up till two in the morning. And by the time I finished, I was incensed. There was only two black models in that book. Wow. Now there's like a hundred models in that book, but they only put Naomi Campbell and Iman in this book. But there were a ton of just mediocre models that weren't even supermodels or had no impact on the book. Yeah, they're models and they worked a little, but they didn't have campaigns. They didn't have covers. They didn't have magazine contracts. And I was like, where is Veronica Webb, the first Black woman to receive a cosmetics contract for Revlon, a major cosmetics contract? Where is Tyra Banks, the first Black woman on the cover of Sports Illustrated and the first Black woman on the cover of, uh, of GQ by herself and the first Black woman on the cover of Victoria's Secret catalog? Where is Donyell Luna, the first Black woman on the cover of British Vogue 
any Vogue, but on the cover of British Vogue. She wasn't in there? She wasn't in there. And that's historic. Wow. Eight yeah. years before American Vogue put Beverly Johnson on the cover of their magazine, British Vogue put Danielle Luna on the cover of its magazine. She's the first woman on the cover of Vogue. And so if you go to Amazon to this day, my review is up there giving that book <laughs> star. And that was the impetus. That was like right then and there, I like got out a, I got out like a notepad and a pen, a pencil, and I, off the top of my head, I started making a list of all the black models I would have put in that book. Off the top of my head. And I looked, I did research online, and there was no other book like mine. My book is an art book. So there are other books out there. Naomi has a book. You know, Naomi has several books. Tyra has a book. Veronica Webb has a book. Iman has a book. There are books out there about models. A wonderful model from the 70s named Barbara Summers put out two books about Black models. But they weren't positioned as art books. They weren't oversized. They weren't beautiful. The um, gist of the books wasn't about the photos and the photographers and the designers the women worked for. Dwayne Thomas put out a book called Body and Soul, the Black Male Beauty Book, which has a bunch of models in it, a, black, a bunch of Black guy models in it. I'm in that book, a photo I took by Norman Jean Roy, Tyson and Richard Elms and Boris Kojo, all my contemporaries from when I was working as a model are in that book. And so there are Black books out there, but there wasn't one of the scale that I would want, that I would want to collect, you know, that I would want to sit next to the Vogue covers book or the Harper's Bazaar Models book, or the Vogue Model Faces or Fashion book. And so I saw that hole, and my goal was to fill it. And you absolutely did. This book is so incredibly beautiful, and it's just one, like you said, it's an art book, so every single page is one beautiful model after another. So your book is really a tribute and a celebration of these women And so it starts really with the trailblazers. You start by highlighting three of the pioneering Black models, first Black models in fashion, um, Ophelia Devoir, Dorothea Towles, and Helen Williams. Can you tell us a little bit about these women? Okay, so because of space, there's a fourth, and I really wanted to include her, right? But because of space and pages, I had to condense that, right? So I had to condense that conversation. But the divine Sarah Lou Harris was a model from like the mid 40s and she changed the game. So once I started doing the book, I felt like you couldn't, the book was just supposed to be pretty pictures of pretty models, just beautiful pictures. And it was supposed to be like a truffle. It wasn't supposed to be deep. It wasn't supposed to be like challenging. (laughs) Pretty little art book, you know, pretty stories about pretty girls. And then as I started doing the research, the history of the Black model starts with the, with the inception of Ebony magazine in 1945, because Ebony was supposed to be the Black counterpart of Life magazine. And so Ebony was how Black people were portrayed, what really Black life was. And it was the first time that we took the power and we decided to show all the aspects of Black life, you know, the good and bad, and make it real, not through the white male lens or gaze, you know? And so part of that is fashion. 
And so there became a need for black fashion models. So right there, there's a publisher that's putting out a monthly magazine and we need black models. So now you have Ophelia DeVore who had been trying to model and had some, not success, but you know, she was a pretty girl, she wanted to model. And Ophelia is really important to fashion because Ophelia was fair skinned and had quote unquote good hair. So she went to Vogue modeling school and learned how to model, but Vogue didn't allow black women to join the school, to enroll. So Ophelia passed. She pretended to be white to learn the craft of modeling. Wow. And she started modeling and she found that she couldn't get mainstream work because she was black and she got tired of just doing ebony and the occasional black fashion show at a church or what, or what have you. And she decided to start her own agency. And so she started the Greystone Marco Agency, which was one of the first black agencies in New York and in the United States and in the world. And she lobbied advertisers and stores, you know, trying to get her girls in the pages of mainstream, her girls' mainstream work. And so she's incredibly important to fashion because Dorothea Towles, who is the next big figure in black fashion and a top, top model back then, was one of Ophelia's models. And when Dorothea wasn't getting the kind of work she wanted, Ophelia and Dorothea hatched this plan. Well, girl, go to Paris. See if there's work there. Because Dorothea was going to Paris on vacation anyway to see her sister, who was a concert pianist. And so she was like, well, while I'm there, I'm going to see if I can get work as a model. And she goes... And she somehow wrangles a meeting with Christian Dior and Christian Dior <laughs> models. And she breaks open the Parisian couture runways for black women. She's the first black model to appear on the high-end fashion runways. And they loved her. They loved her skin and her hair and her deportment and her style and how she wore the clothes. And she stayed in Europe. She stayed in Paris and she worked for all the designers. She worked for all the Joan Desses and Chaparelli. She worked for the big names. And she came back to the U.S. to the same thing. She couldn't find work. She couldn't find work at the level that she was working at. And enter um, Helen Williams, who was the first dark-skinned model to break through. Helen Williams was a fashion stylist working for white photographers in New York. And they kept saying to her, you should be a model. You're so beautiful. You're thin, you're tall, your neck, you know, you have this long, beautiful neck, your bone structure, you should be a model. And Helen was like, there's no place for a dark skinned black woman. You know, what are you talking about? I've got a job. I'm a stylist, you know, and she was successful as a stylist. And she ended up shooting for like a, um, like a New York magazine or a fashion sub supplement for a newspaper. And people wanted to see her, you know, there, there became this little like buzz about her, but she couldn't get a, an agency. Ford turned her down. All the agencies of the day that represented white models turned her down. So she ends up at Grace Del Marco and Ophelia DeVoy ends up her agent. And again, Ophelia is like, I'm going to get you work. Let's, let's do this. <laughs> Helen follows in the footsteps of Dorothea and goes to Paris and becomes the first dark-skinned Black woman 
on the Parisian runways. And she kills it. And she stays in Paris making her money and doing all the designers and, and opening the door for the Black model even further in Europe. La Belle Americaine, you know? Yeah. Like, these, all these girls. So you can't even talk about models and, and Black models without talking about those three women. And then Helen comes back to the United States and is still facing discrimination, even though she's the toast of Paris. But she still breaks through with the help of Ophelia. And she's one of the first Black models to appear in mainstream publications, fashion magazines. And she, more importantly, is one of the first Black models to do advertising campaigns. She did Bulova. She did Noxzema. She was very glamorous in these mainstream advertisements that open the door for other Black models, but also show that Black people have clout. We bought those products when we saw right. her in the ads. <laughs> and who is the fourth one you wanted to talk about? Sarah Lou Harris. So here's what's important about Sarah Lou Harris. She was just as big a model as Ophelia in her day and as Dorothea Towles Church is Dorothea's married name, but she hyphenated because she was Dorothea Towles, honey. <laughs> Sarah Lou Harris is really important because in the mid-1940s, she did a cigarette ad for Lucky Strike. And it was the first time that an advertiser mirrored Black advertising to their white advertising. So in the Lucky Strike ad, you had this wonderful, like, white woman in a fur, looking glamorous, smoking a cigarette. Because remember back then, cigarettes were supposed to be the height of sophistication. Oh, yeah. You know? <laughs> and then Lucky Strike was like, well, Black people smoke cigarettes. Let's do an ad geared towards the Black community. And they mirrored the white ad. So there's Sarah Lou Harris, you know, face beat, hair done, cigarette in hand, wearing a fur. You know, looking glamorous. And it was the first time that people of color had seen themselves represented so glamorously. And it opened the door for other advertisers to go, oh, let's change the way that we show Black people and let's appeal to the Black consumer. So the effect of the trailblazers cannot be denied cannot be understated because they opened the door just by being and they were tenacious. There's over 70 models featured in your book, many of whom you interviewed and the first interview, and in fact, you dedicated an entire section in your book to her, is with Beth Ann Hardison, who's prolific career began in 1968. So why is Beth Ann, you label her the godmother of Supreme Models. Why did you give her that moniker? Well, first of all, Beth Ann is everything. But when I call Beth Ann the godmother, that comes from a quote that Diane von Furstenberg said about Beth Ann. She referred to Beth Ann as the very godmother to all the wonderful Black models and to all the models period, no race. But I called her the godmother because of that, but I also called her the godmother because so many models refer to her as Mama B. So many models, specifically Naomi Campbell, 
refer to her as mama. And within like five minutes of talking to her, you realize why. She's got that energy. She's like that mama you want. She's like, I mean, she'll snatch you. She will tell you, she'll <laughs> of course correct you in a second. But then will see me on something and she will send me a text and she'll be like, what are you wearing? Or she'll be like, I don't care. You know, it's like, that's who she is. And that's at her core. She's a nurturer, but she's also a director. She's like strong. She's like, you know, she believes so wholeheartedly in fairness and she believes in the, in the abilities of all of us. She wants us to not only live our best lives, but be our best. And there's just something wonderful about her. And it doesn't have a race, you know? Bethann is like team everybody. You know, even though she's this Black model and she was a pioneering Black model, but, and she's this incredible figure in fashion. She's discovered by Willie Smith, a legendary Black designer, who's one of the few Black designers to have a real profound, long-lasting impact upon Black fashion. One of the top designers ever, and unfortunately we lost Willie to AIDS. Willie saw Bethann walking down the street, going to her job in fashion on Fifth Avenue and was obsessed with her and made her into a model. Then Bethann becomes a highly sought after runway model because of her work with Willie, and she becomes a muse to all the 70s designers, to Halston, to um, Bill Blass, to Oscar de la Renta, you know? She's like right there, to Giorgio Sant'Angelo. But this is the crazy thing about Bethann. She's this huge runway model, but she never quit her job in fashion working at the, at the Notion store selling buttons. <laughs> That's how practical she is. That's Bethann in a nutshell. She's like, this model thing is good and I'm having a good time, but I got to go to work. You know, <laughs> she, would, she would leave work, go to do a show, finish the show, go back to work. <laughs> like, that is true. And Bethann was one of the models who went to the Battle of Versailles yes. and first opened even further for the Black model. So she's legendary that way. She was one of the original bookers at Click Models, which is a huge modeling agency to this day. And she was responsible for adding diversity to their books. You know, Click was known as having the quirky model, the new model, the interesting model. And that's because of Bethann Hardison. That's because she was like, let's take on this black girl. Let's take on this Latino girl. Let's take on Bonnie Berman. I love her face. You know, Bonnie Berman is one of the top models of the 70s and one of the highest money makers and a perennial cover girl. And Bethann had a hand in that. And then Bethann started her own agency when she left Click. And she was responsible for the careers of Rashumba Williams, Veronica Webb, most notably Tyson Beckford. And even if she didn't represent these models, she helped models she wasn't the agent for. She was instrumental at the beginning of Naomi's career, getting her out there, introducing her to designers, making sure that photographers saw her, showing these girls how to work, you know, how to be professional on set, how to walk, what to change, what to put in your model bag, you know, as you go to work. Because oftentimes a black model would go to set and they wouldn't have her her makeup colors, and she would get home, she would get sent home. And Beth Ann was like one of those people that was like a mother figure to all of us. That was like, okay, do this, talk to this person, let me introduce you to that person. 
But most importantly, when Bethany was an agent, she was the person that when an, a client would call and book a white girl, she'd be like, well, what about this girl too? Or what about that girl who happened to be Latino or happened to be black? And if that client called trying to book a black model and a white model, and they were paying the white model more, Bethann would subtly say, well, why are you paying this model more than that model? You know? And she asked the question in a way that wasn't accusatory. And so she was subtly there, every brush she took, she was subtly there pushing for diversity, pushing for fairness, pushing for equality and inclusion. And you need that person that's a fashion insider that when Calvin Klein calls, she's going to say, hey, Calvin, why are you paying this model that when, you should, when you're paying that model this? Why don't we pay them both the same amount? Or suggesting a new model and getting a photographer to see her or an agent or an agent in another country to see her or a client to see her. Or when Brides Magazine calls for a white model going, okay, let me get you, a, I got some great girls, and why don't I throw some black girls in this package? Black people get married too. Right. <laughs> and her work, I mean, talk about prolific career. It's been 50 years now, over 50 years since she's been in fashion. And her, her work and activism still exists to this very day. And we're going to talk about that later in this interview. So many wonderful models featured in this book including Pat Cleveland. She was a guest on our show last year. Her career began in 1964. You feature Amon, whose career began in 1975. You interviewed Beverly Johnson, um, first Black model on the cover of Vogue, American Vogue, um, Peggy Dillard. Mind you, many of these women are still modeling, which is incredible. So I have to know what it was like to interview these icons of fashion, many of whom you grew up seeing in fashion magazines. Well, I interviewed, listen, I tried, like it was my job. Every model in this book, I tried to interview. And I got as many as I could. There are many interviews that didn't make the book because those models didn't make the book. I ultimately interviewed around 40 models when all is said and done. Some models are in the book and their interview didn't make the cut. Some models didn't make the cut at all. So I, I'm sitting on their interviews. And it doesn't mean that their interviews weren't wonderful. It just came down to the photos because this is an art book. And I wanted to get the strongest images I possibly could and the most beautiful and arresting images I could. I interviewed Beverly Johnson. I've known her for a while in passing because she lives in Palm Springs and she still works and you'll see her in um, all over LA. I got to interview her. She was one of the last interviews I did because she was putting me off but I was relentless. <laughs> and we talked like two hours and it was beautiful. And Beverly holds history. You know, she was there, she started in about 1971 modeling and she worked consistently throughout the 80s into the 90s. And so she worked through a lot of periods. She worked through the women's rights movement. She worked through the Black is Beautiful, through the end of the Black is Beautiful movement. She was there when a lot of things were shifting. And she was there. Can you imagine that Beverly Johnson at one point couldn't get an agency? But because she was so beautiful, she was a freelance model for a couple of years. And she was shooting the cover of Glamour and the cover of Mademoiselle, but she didn't have a booker or an agency because Ford wouldn't take her. Wilhelmina wouldn't take her. 
the big agencies of the day wouldn't take her. And the black agencies wouldn't take her. And I find that stunning. This is a woman who is working because she's beautiful, because people are stopping her on the street in New York and saying, you should be a model. I'm a photographer. I work for this magazine. I work for that magazine. And she can't get an agency. Well, isn't isn't it Eileen Ford who told her she was too fat? Is that Beverly Johnson's story? Yeah. Told her she was too fat. And of course, another, you know, part of the fashion industry, right, is uh is meeting these standards and beauty ideals. And then she comes back, I think, and Eileen Ford was like, oh, you lost weight, even though she hadn't. <laughs> so I think the way that that goes is exactly as you said, is she went to an open call and there would be like, an open call was crazy. So there's 20 models sitting out front and Eileen Ford, after, you know, the anticipation builds and Eileen Ford work, walked into the room and she literally goes around the room. No, 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 too short. Oh, no. She's making little comments as she's saying, no, yes, stay later. Yes, you can stay. And she gets to Beverly, looks Beverly up and down, and she goes, no, too fat, and just keeps going. So Beverly goes home. Now, as I said, Beverly's on the cover of all these magazines. So somehow, Eileen and her team put two and two together and go, that was the girl that signed in for the open call get her back in here. And so they call Beverly. She comes in from Brooklyn. She shows up for her meeting with Eileen and Eileen looks her up and down and goes, oh, you've lost weight. It was like a week or two weeks later. And as Beverly says, I didn't lose any weight. I was, Beverly says this thing. And so <laughs> she says, I was sitting at home eating good humor bars. I didn't lose any weight. <laughs> Love that. Johnson is addicted to good human strawberry shortcakes. <laughs> yeah, your interview with her is wonderful. It's wonderful. All the interviews are wonderful. The girls just opened up like you can't believe. I always call these women, no matter how old they are, and that's a fashion thing. You always call the model girls. You know, you always refer to them as girls. I call the models girls to this day. And Beverly... The problem with the book is that I only had so much space. We talk for hours and she weighs in beautifully because, you know, in fashion, and unfortunately it mirrors, it mirrors society. And I always say this, fashion mirrors society and the journey of the Black model mirrors the Black person's place in society. That's one of the reasons why this book is so important because fashion and Black models are a microcosm for the bigger picture. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, Beverly Johnson is one of the biggest models of the 70s and has been working since 1971 and has already appeared on the cover of American Vogue before Iman even starts modeling. But somehow fashion wanted to pit the two of them against each other because it could only be one top model, you know, one top black model, excuse me. There's space for Christy Brinkley, there's space for Carol Alt, there's space for... All Cheryl Teagues, there's space for every single white girl that comes to Gia Karangi. There's space for um, Janice Dickinson. Every single white girl that wants to model, there's a place for her. But there can only be one black model. There can only be one black top model. It's not Beverly versus whoever the top white model of the day was back then, probably Christy Brinkley. But it's all of a sudden Beverly versus Iman. Just like when you go a couple years later, it's Naomi versus Tyra. 
but it's never Naomi versus Christy Turlington or Naomi versus Linda Evangelista. And most importantly, it's never Linda versus Christy. It's never Claudia versus Cindy. There's always space for all the white girls, but there's only space for one black model. And so she's pitted against the newer black model that comes in because it's like, oh my God, here she comes. She's going to take your throne. She's going to take your money. And it's, it's sick in a way because black people are, you know, because of racism, because of our history of slavery, that was one of the things they used to divide black people historically. You had the house slave who was treated better and you had the field slave who was treated poorly. And so the field slave hated the house slave. And the field slave who was dark from the sun hated the house slave because they had lighter skin and they were probably the product of a rape. You know, the lighter skin, the light skin black person was probably the product of the slave owner raping the woman and producing a lighter child. And so we still, to this day, in the Black community have colorism. We still somehow think that Black skin and the better the texture your hair is, the closer it is to, the, the Black skin is bad. And the lighter your skin is, or the light, or the better your hair is, it somehow makes you a better person. And we're still dealing with that. I dealt with that when I put this dark-skinned woman on the cover of my book. You know, that was incredibly political. You know, I didn't go after a lighter, I didn't go after Naomi. I didn't go after a lighter skin model. And I did actually, truth be told. But Abrams decided to put Janelle Williams on the cover, a, a black Jamaican woman who is clearly, clear, you know, there's nothing Eurocentric about Janelle Williams, you know? Yeah. <laughs> that pose, that bone structure, you know? She, it, Janelle has very short hair and Afro, but in that photo, it looks like she's bald. That was an important statement, putting her on the cover and not going with a more fair-skinned model. Yeah. Iconic. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, that's what's so incredible about your book, too, is that it's giving pride a place to all of these models, right, who've had these incredible careers spanning really eight decades, and it goes from the 1940s all the way up to the present day. I love that your book is in alphabetical order because it allows this wonderful juxtaposition of a model like Pat Cleveland, whose career began in the 60s, to be put alongside Rose Cordero, whose career began in 2009, you know, Beverly Johnson's next to Aya Jones, whose career started in 2014, Naomi Sims next to Joanne Smalls. So, you know, the list just goes on. That's how your book reads. So you really get this breadth of time and the, you know, place these models are from all around the world, but also the legacy and the interconnectedness of these women. Will you please share some of your takeaways from this, really what is ultimately a 70 plus year survey and celebration of black models? What did you take away from this experience and what did you learn from all of these women? Well, I still get goose flesh from so many of these stories and so many of the experiences I had. And I love how it worked out like that because it is like Iman and then it's somebody from the 90s, and then it's somebody that's brand new and killing it, and then it's somebody who's historic, like Daphne Maxwell-Reed, and then it's somebody that's like an Alec Weck that's been around, then it's somebody that's like breaking right now, like DeLone, or Riley Montana, or Anuk Yai, or Adut. You know what I mean? It's like all of those girls are mixed in, and because they're mixed into the melange of the book, you get the history. 
you get the first woman on the cover of Glamour magazine. You get the first woman on the cover of Mademoiselle magazine. You get the first woman on the cover of British Vogue. But then you also get the brand new girl that's the first model to open YSL or the first model to receive a Louis Vuitton exclusive, a worldwide exclusive, Teresa Hayes. You get all the history, it's there. And you begin to see how one thing helps another thing helps another thing and how they're all interconnected to right now and the strides that we're making currently. Yeah, and something I love about your book too is that of course we have all the well-known models, Tyra, Naomi, Iman, but it also highlights these lesser known models, um, Peggy Dillard, who is the second black model on the cover of American Vogue. You have Daphne Maxwell Reed, the first black woman on the cover of Glamour. Can you tell us a little bit more about these models and any other model you'd like to highlight? Because you really talk about how many of these models had a profound influence on your own career and relationship to fashion. And I'm sure you're not alone in those sentiments. Let's talk about Peggy Dillard, because I did interview Peggy. She was the last model that I put into the book. Now, there's a wonderful model from the late 80s into the 90s named Karen Alexander, Mm -hmm. who was huge. So I interviewed Karen. And during my interview with Karen, right away, she started talking about the models and the history. She knows her stuff. And so she was like, is Sheila Johnson in the book? Is Peggy Dillard in the book? And I was like, no, because I have too many girls from the late 70s, early 80s. And Karen Alexander, Miss Cover of Vogue, Miss Elle Magazine, Miss Cover of Elle Magazine, was like, take me out and put Peggy Dillard in. Wow. And I'm what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> amused to Peter Lindbergh, amused to her Ritz. And I was like, no, and a Vogue girl. I was like, no, this is my book. Don't tell me who to put in the tape. <laughs> and so she was like, you have to put Sheila Johnson and Peggy Dillard means so much to me. Growing up, they were my favorite models and Beverly Johnson. And da, 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 da. So it made me rethink that. And I went out looking for Peggy. And as the universe works, Peggy heard about my book somehow and reached out to me on Instagram. Wow. And asked me if she was in my book. And I was like, no, I was trying to find you. And she was like, well, you found me. And I was like, let me go to the editors and see if I can (laughs) cut somebody because you are the queen And let me try to get you in the book. And can I interview you? And she was like, yes. And unfortunately, we didn't have space to put her interview in. But I had trouble clearing a brand new model. And I'm not going to say her name. And the photos that I could find were really expensive. And they weren't good. And blah, blah, blah. And I was trying so hard to put her in because she was a lesbian. Because I wanted to put, I wanted to represent for the LGBTQI community also. And it didn't work out. And I was like, you know what? Peggy Dillard was the second Black woman on the cover of Vogue. When her first Vogue cover came out, it became the highest selling issue of Vogue ever, replacing the Beverly Johnson Vogue, which had been to date the highest selling cover of Vogue ever. And you would think if the magazines were like, oh, every time we put a Black model on the cover, the magazine becomes the best-selling magazine, you would think that would mean that there would be more Black women on the cover. Doesn't, didn't, still to this day, because we can, we can talk about the Black Italian Vogue issue. 
Peggy was wonderful because she talked about it from the perspective of, of a model that was almost a super because she appeared on the cover of Vogue three more times. Because her Vogue issue, her first Vogue issue was a bestseller, they constantly put her on the magazine, they put her on the magazine two more times, and they put her in the magazine shot by the same photographer and basically wearing the same outfit in the same colors to try to keep that, you know, to try to like recapture that, that lightning in a bottle. Peggy's interview was wonderful, but the only reason Peggy made it into the book was because Karen Alexander was like, look, you have to put Peggy Dillon into the book. <laughs> well, and I mean, that just goes to show that you do need to do another edition or many, many more books because there's so many more stories and that need to be shared. And like I said, because it's alphabetical, you really see this cycle, this legacy that's being passed down through generations. You, yourself, and Karen both being influenced by this, the generation of models that came before. I mean, that exists into the, into the present day for sure. And you have all of these models talking about the women who influenced them before them. And you know there's some little girl or boy reading this book, like you said, that's going to look at it and say, wow, that can be me. You know, and it's it's just it's so important and and just it's so wonderful. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more. That world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For limited time dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this <laughs> hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. 
I kind of want to conclude our conversation with talking about today and the moment that we're in right now, because your book is a celebration, of course, of these models' lives, their careers, but it's also a testament to their strength, their bravery, that fortitude that was required in this industry that has not always been welcoming to women of color. And Veronica actually writes quite beautifully in her foreword, as you said, that the, quote, the true magic of modeling is representation. And as we've said many times in this interview, that is a theme throughout your book. You also quote Amon, who says, I'll be truly happy when we're not counting the number of ethnically diverse models on a fashion runway or a campaign, when having a representation of the entire human race is the norm and not an exception. And thanks to the Black Lives Matter movement, the fashion industry, like so many industries and institutions, really is in the middle of a reckoning and a revolution. In what ways do you see the movement influencing the industry today and into the future? And maybe who are some of the industry professionals, photographers, models, designers that we should all be paying attention to? Okay, one of the things that I want people to understand about fashion and about the Black model, fashion is always the precursor to social change. I honestly believe that. If it's not there before, it's there as it's happening and it's pushing us forward, right? So every time a Black model breaks through, it's like a cultural shift. Think about it this way. So you have all these wonderful models from the 40s and the 50s, and now we get into Helen Williams being the first Black model to really get national ad campaigns. Then you get later into the, the 60s and you get uh, Danielle Luna on the cover of British Vogue for the first time. You get Daphne Maxwell-Reed, who most of us know as um, light-skinned Aunt Viv, or the second Aunt Viv on the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. But before that, she was a top model. She was a Ford girl. And she's the first Black woman on the cover of Glamour. You get Naomi Sims, who was the first Black supermodel, who was on the cover of Life magazine, and more importantly, on the cover of Ladies Home Journal that had a 14 million circulation, 14 million subscriptions to that magazine in 1969. So when her face is on the cover of a magazine that's in 14 million homes across the United States, and she's got her natural hair and her dark skin, that is an announcement that Black women exist and matter, and they're beautiful. And every time a Black model breaks through, like Beverly Johnson on American Vogue, it's again, Black models, Black women exist. And our standards of beauty are equal to your standards of beauty, whoever the, whoever the viewer may be. So every time a Black model sort of breaks through, it happens. But I'll say this about the Black Lives Matter movement. Fashion was moving before this happened towards diversity and inclusion. We have Black models like Leomi Anderson, Jordan Dunn, a girl that I wanted in the book but didn't make the cut, Ebony Davis, that are standing up because they are Instagram stars and they're using their following to talk about the injustice that we as Black people go through on sets. You have someone like me who's a stylist who talks about it. You have these controversies that have popped up, like the Gucci blackface sweater, where it was the black sweater with the red lips. And you have the H&M um, controversy with putting the t-shirt that read the coolest monkey in the jungle on the black model, right? You have, and then you have 
German Vogue, I believe it was, that um, I could be wrong. It, it is a German magazine that misidentified a black model in the magazine. It was a picture of Naomi Wen Chen, and they misidentified her as somebody else. And that actually happened to probably the top model in the world, a, a catch. She was misidentified in a magazine that was doing a profile of her. So, and fashion and black models and black people like Naomi Campbell were calling these publications and these companies out before this Black Lives Matter thing sort of happened and before this happened. Black models were talking about Me Too in fashion for ages before this happened. It's only now that it's become national mm -hmm. and because we're talking about it on such a big level that it's been amplified, but changes in fashion have been coming for a long time, the reckoning is here. Think about Victoria's Secret. Back in the day, Victoria's Secret was the top job of, of a model could get. And we've been talking about diversity and inclusion with Victoria's Secret for ages. It was such a big deal when Maria Borges, who is in the book, didn't wear a weave or a wig on the Victoria's Secret runway several years ago and rocked her afro, her natural hair on the runway. That was a first. So fashion is always ahead of the curve. And black models are always like, nope, that's not right. That's not good. You know what I mean? They're always there just by being there and their appearance and then just by being on those sets. And now we have people like Virgil at um, Off-White, now at Louis Vuitton. We have Edward Innenfull and we have Higher Moss, and we have um, Kushni. We have all these people who are designers and art directors, and now publishers. Edward Innenvoe is the is the editor at Vogue, at British Vogue. We now have people that are like now not just talking about it in fashion, but we're talking about it on Instagram, and we're talking about it in the press. We're no longer scared to be the agitator. So that's one thing that this moment in time, but fashion has been leading up to it for a while and we've been making strides in that space for a while. And I think we'll continue to. Yeah, and something you just touched on too is it's not just about the models that you're putting at the face of your campaign. It's also about the photographers you hire, the stylists you hire, getting people, you know, Black men and women who are editor-in-chiefs of your magazine and on your boards. That's the real way that change is going to be instituted into these publications and these fashion brands. I mean, when you see where Edward started at British Vogue, it was like an instant change. An instant change and a necessary change. The divine Beth Ann Hardison. We did an appearance for the book on the Tamron Hall show, right? And Beth Ann, you know, she's a straight shooter. She's got an opinion about everything. She'll tell you something straight, no chaser and doesn't care. She does not care. She's like Needy Leaks. I said what I said. You know what I mean? <laughs> and said something during our talk where she was like, I'm tired of talking about diversity and inclusion. I want to talk about integration. Right. What she meant by that is we need to put Black people and people of color in positions at these magazines. It can't just be about diversity, which can be as simple as, oh, so let's use a Black girl in this group of five girls or let's use an Asian girl in this group of five girls. Or this year, we're gonna use an Asian girl in our, in our campaign. Wow, we've done it, it's inclusion. It has to be about putting black people and people of color and people of all races in positions of power so that they can affect change. If there had been a black person present at Gucci 
at the design level, they would never have done that. I would have, if I had been sitting there, I'd have been like, you know what? You can do that sweater in every color iteration known to mankind. But the one color iteration you can't do is black with red lips. And let me tell you why. You know, when Katy Perry put out that shoe that had the black, that was a black shoe with the big red lips. If I had been sitting there at Katy Perry's company, I'd be like, let's do it in gold and silver. Let's do it in, you know, but we're going to stay away from brown and we're going to stay away from black. You know, <laughs> you know, if I had been the stylist on set at H&M and saw that T-shirt, I don't necessarily have a problem with the coolest monkey on the, in the jungle T-shirt. But I would have been like, take that T-shirt off that little black boy and put it on a white boy. You know what I mean? And, and because we're not there and because people are tone deaf, I don't think they set out to be racist. But if you don't know when, it, when the kerfluffle happens, you can't say, oh, we didn't know because you had the opportunity to self-educate and you could have done that through integration. If you had other voices in the room, yep. you know, one of the things to me about my incredibly beautiful book that I am so proud of that has changed my life so in so many ways is that I wanted to put black photographers in the book and I could cry right now and I'm going to try not to. I wanted so hard, so desperately to put black photographers in the book. And the section of trailblazers, those photographers happened to be black because they were staff photographers with Ebony and Jet. But it was so hard to find black photographers that had worked at Glamour and Mademoiselle and International Editions of Vogue that there are two black photographers in my book with over 70 black models. Mark Baptiste and... Um, I can't even remember the other photographer. And that was a fight, which is probably why I can't remember him because he's not a, a big, successful James Hicks. He's not a big, successful photographer. I found a photo of a wonderful model named Loy Samuels. It's pronounced Lo. It's, it looks like Lois, L-O-I-S, but it's pronounced Loy, like Joy. And as I was looking for photos of her, his photo of her, which is stunning, kept coming up. And I was like, I want this photo in along with her German Vogue cover. And Abrams was like, no, it didn't run in a magazine. And I was like, I need to put this photo in this book because if I don't, there's only going to be one other Black photographer in a book about Black models. That is a problem. Yep. And I fought to get that photo in the book because he was a Black photographer and his work is glorious. And that photo stands up to any other photo in the book. And it's one of two unpublished photos in, that, in the book. Every other photo ran in a high-end magazine. But I had to fight for that. And I was fighting for it because I wanted another photographer of color to be in the book. And the fact that there are only four breaks my heart. Well, and it's a part of the systemic racism that underscores the fashion industry's legacy, right? Because just, I think it's two years ago now that the Tyler Mitchell became the first Black photographer to shoot Beyonce, but to shoot anybody, first Black photographer ever to shoot a cover of Vogue. And we think we've come so far, but it's, I mean, that's part of what this movement is showing is like, we really haven't because it's, it's all surface, right? Um, I think his name's Dario Kelmis, the first Black photographer to shoot 
the cover of Vanity Fair this year. So it's admirable that you wanted to do that, but this fashion industry hasn't made that possible for you because they're not hiring those photographers or those stylists or those makeup art and hair artists. You know, it, it goes it goes so much deeper than just models. But I will say that your book, which is a celebration of those models and their legacy, I mean, what an incredible, incredible gift to us all, Marcellus. Thank you so much. Cassidy, thank you so much. I really appreciate you allowing me to be undressed because I love your podcast. I love the other people you've had on your podcast and exalting me and putting me out there talking about my book feels like you put me at a level that I want to be at. And so I appreciate you so much for doing this. And thank you for including me in the group of people that you've had on your beautiful podcast. Because this whole thing, representation matters. And you just put me in a group of people that I love, who of all races. And your listener, who may not know about my book, is going to hear us talk about it. And they're going to learn something. And hopefully that translates into them buying a book, you know? And hopefully that translates into them learning something about the models inside the book. So thank you for having me and choosing me to be a guest on the show. Marcellus, thank you so much for both writing and sharing this incredible book with us. Yeah, and I think it shows, but I had so much fun interviewing him. His joy is absolutely infectious, and his passion for sharing the legacy and lives of these truly iconic women is just, it's so in- inspiring. I cannot recommend this book enough. Yeah, and, and also for being an art book, it's surprisingly affordable because some of these books are crazy expensive with all the photographs and everything. You can actually grab a copy of Marcellus' book currently for $26 on Amazon, although... I will say, while Amazon is the easy choice for all of us, there's some ethics there at play. So, (laughs) you know, do as you see fit. Order from who you see fit. There are plenty of other, look, book retailers out there. So, you know, we recommend perhaps you check out bookshop.org for your next book order. And Bookshop's mission is to support local and independent bookstores. Yeah, so something we really, really can get behind and definitely check out that website and get your hands on this beautiful book stat. In April, I think my scouting begins right now to get some of these pioneering models on the show. Yay! I mean, Pat Cleveland's already been here. So, right. yeah, she was at the top of our list before we even launched this show. I was like, if we can get Pat Cleveland to come on the show, that's when we know we've made it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but like so many others, like Beth Ann Hardison, like Peggy Dillard, I know those models are out there. And maybe if you're listening, you'll come on and be a guest on Dress. Yes, please do. I think that does it for us today, Dress listeners. May you consider the legacy of these Supreme models next time you get dressed. Remember to tune in this Thursday for our mini-sode where we alternate between answering your fashion history mystery queries and sharing all things fashion history happening in the world today. And we love hearing from you. So if you would like to email us, please do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also direct message us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where you'll also find images accompanying each week's episode. You can also follow us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. And as always, special thank yous to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes this show possible each and every week. Catch you Thursday.
Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.